1: I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thanks for joining us. I just spoke with Joseph Hankins about his really wonderful new book, Working Skin, Making Leather, Making a Multicultural Japan. This came out with the University of California Press in 2014. Now, the book is about Japan. It's about making leather, but it's also about much, much more than that. What this is, is an ethnography of contemporary Buraku people Uh, and and who those are and what constitutes that category and that form of identity is very much a focus of the book and of the conversation to come. But it situates that story within a larger story about forms of labor, about the kinds of labor that are Involved in not just producing Baraku identity, Buraku politics, but also in disciplining the knowers about and the studiers of these phenomena and those who are studied at the same time. So it's a really thoughtful account of um, forms of discipline and labor. It takes us into case studies and settings and research um, contexts that include t- tanneries, they include NGOs, they include study tours. Um, to India, uh, lots of different contexts that are just really, really fascinating on their own grounds, um, and just together make a really compelling and I think thoughtful and very methodologically and conceptually sophisticated study. So, among the many things that I loved about this book, beyond you know the the really. I think, vibrant and rich accounts of the ethnographic contexts that Joe was working in include the thoughtful attention to multiculturalism as a form of labor, to the ways that movement and circulation um, really is a form of making, making objects, making kinds of people, and sort of thinking about forms of discipline as well and forms of control. It's also just a really clearly and beautifully written book. So I'll stop there um, so that you can get directly to the interview and the conversation. Just to say that I really highly recommend this. Um, I hope you have a chance to take a look at the book because it's very satisfying on lots of different levels. And I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thanks for listening. I'm here today to talk with Joseph Hankins about his really awesome new book, Working Skin. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Joe, and thanks for making the time to talk with me. Thanks for an awesome book, and I'm really looking forward to this, so welcome.
0: Thank you so much, Carla. It's really a pleasure to be here, and thank you for having me.
1: Of course. So, Joe, could you start us off, as is traditional for the channel, by saying just a little bit about how you came to the field, How what brought you to work in the ethnography of Japan?
0: Absolutely. Um, I'm originally from a relatively small town in West Texas, Lubbock, Texas, and then I went to undergraduate at Rice University, which is in Houston, Texas, in the States, and um, majored in mathematics and English in undergraduate. Never took a social science course. um, But my third year, I wanted. I decided that I wanted to study abroad somewhere and applied to a variety of different programs, to a program in Galway, to a program in Amsterdam, to one in New Zealand. And then a friend of mine, Catherine Custard, who lived down the hall from me, suggested that I apply to this program in Japan. Um, and I think it's through the successes of the Japanese Ministry of Education that took me to Japan. I had No real prior knowledge about Japan or even a particular strong interest in it. Um, But I applied for this program and the Ministry of Education was really keen on recruiting people from, I think, particularly the United States and other probably Canada and some European countries. And they provided me a really nice fellowship. Uh, that covered my tuition and gave me a stipend and at the time i 'd been working four jobs or so to pay for my tuition, and it just was too appealing to pass up uh, so i I decided to go to Japan. Sort of on, you know, out of the the economic successes of the Ministry of Education in Japan.
1: It's amazing. The more people I talk to um, for the channel, how many people have stories that are kind of like that, right? Sort of didn't grow up with much experience um, or really any experience knowing about or being inherently interested in China or Japan or Korea or Vietnam, and through what almost seems happenstance, life brings us to an experience in a place that ultimately winds up being a focus of our life's work.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's really amazing how that one arbitrary decision has shaped the next 20 years of my life. Like I, yeah, I think there was also a drive to get out of Texas too. I mean, I think my original impulse to study abroad somewhere, I was curious about living somewhere and experiencing another way of life. But I was also in the process, those first bits of a process of coming out as gay and knew that I wanted to get away from Texas to sort of allow that to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I for some reason thought go you know, getting seven thousand miles away from my hometown might <laughs> facilitate that. So yeah, those those were the those were the prompts that you know, that push to find somewhere to maybe come out and then the you know the the appeal of having my education paid for um, pulled me to Japan and have fundamentally transformed the past twenty years of my life.
1: And one of the things I really loved about the book, and and already about the first few minutes of this conversation, <laughs> is how self reflexive you are about the process of research, about your own role in both coming to the project and also um, the sort of in consequence, the self reflexivity that any knower of an object ought to have in the, you know, in making the process of knowing, um, and this is very much a theme that I think um, we can see throughout the book, and we'll talk about that over the course of it. Now, part of it, or part of that, um, really profound and thoughtful, and I think really beautiful self reflexivity, comes up at the very beginning um, when you talk about what brought you to the. So the book that we're talking about today for listeners who haven't already had a chance to read it, and I hope um, they do soon after listening to this, because it's an amazing book on many levels. <laughs> it's an, it Really, um, it's an ethnography of the contemporary Baraku people. And we'll talk about um, what that term means that looks at the labor that's involved in, as you put it, identifying dismantling and reproducing the Baraku situation and you pay special attention to multiculturalism as a kind of labor, as being produced by labor and as a sort of disciplining um, uh, force or or kind of uh, motive force Rather in this process. So in the book, you discuss how you came to work on this particular focus, um, which also involves uh, leather making and Japan's Baraku people. So um, to bring us into the book, can you talk a little bit about that
0: for listeners? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, talk about random happenstance driving research. uh, I was in Japan my second year of graduate school, and after after graduating undergrad. I had moved to Seattle, Washington, and had worked there for a couple of years and decided that I went, wanted to go back to graduate school and applied to anthropology programs. I wanted to do something that would allow me to be a little bit more politically engaged in theoretical mathematics and reading Virginia Woolf, or at least I thought that could let me be, um, and something that would let me read social theory. And I thought anthropology was the way to go. So I applied to PhD programs, and for whatever reason, they let me in. And I then arrived um, at the University of Chicago with experience, having lived in Japan and having studied Japanese. Um, I also had some interest in in Mexico, where I'd spent some time, uh, and designed a project around language use and gender in Japan. I wanted to do something that I thought was vaguely connected to myself as I I had some reservations about anthropology's tendency to study a complete other and contribute to an other the othering of that person um, or of that group Uh, So I wanted to study something that could connect to myself and language and gender was sort of language, gender, sexual orientation was about where I was at with that. So my second year of graduate school, I was in Japan for further language training and got an invitation from this sociologist, a professor of sociology in Japan who I was working with to go tour a leather tannery uh, north of Tokyo and one, one of my advisors, um, Danieline Rutherford had told us all that she thought that one of the, the best, most sure fast methodological, um, orientations you could have during fieldwork was to accept all invitations. Um, <laughs> And so I did. I mean, I had heard a little bit about the Buraku people as a group of people who are stigmatized because of certain kinds of labor that they do, like leather production and meat production. I didn't really think of it as having anything to do with my research, but I went on this trip with this, this sociologist and maybe like 10 or so of his graduate students, um, all of whom are Japanese, and... We went up to this leather tannery uh, north of Tokyo, went around and introduced ourselves. And I could sort of tell that the manager and the owner of the leather tannery were wondering what this six foot two white guy was doing in the room. (laughs) Like, would I even be able to speak? Um, What would I have? Like, why was I there? We got to me and I said that I was a graduate student at the University of Chicago and that I was also from Lubbock, Texas, at which point the owner cut in and in, interrupt me and said Lubbock's really flat and dry and ugly and I, I said um, that is definitely the case how do you know that and it turned out that all of their, le- their raw hide came from my hometown um, that they had just been there touring the ranching industry of West Texas and had toured slaughterhouses and ranches uh, meat processing places and they got Purchased most of their rawhide from that area of the world and then had it shipped in salted crates to Japan where they then processed it into leather. So hearing that, I was just sort of dumbfounded, you know, that these chunks of cows, of these skins, would be in the same place that I was in. And so I was sort of curious at you know that overlap of like why would I, as an anthropology student, who's driven here by some sort of anthropological curiosity and these commodities be here in the same place, 7,000 miles away from where we, we were, where we came from. And I was really curious about the anthropological imagination, what kinds of things occur to us as objects of inquiry and how those things are potentially tied to forms of capitalism and the circulation of commodities. So really my interest came out of that moment. Um, and it was just random happenstance that I was invited up to this tannery and then had this, this overlap.
1: That's amazing. Accept all invitations.
0: Accept all invitations.
1: And look at what <laughs>
0: <laughs> Exactly. Thank you, Daniel and Rutherford. <laughs>
1: So, Joe, we talked a little bit um, earlier before we started the interview about the transition from dissertation to book. And um, so can you talk a little bit about that for our listeners? Were there any major changes? And if there weren't any kind of major transformations in either the shape of the project or in how you were thinking about what you were arguing with it, is there anything that you did at the stage of dissertation that you think facilitated that ease of translation from
0: dissertation to book? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I I think the fundamental transition from dissertation to book was transforming my idea of my audience. Um, in writing the dissertation, I didn't, you know, I did not really understand that I was writing a book. <laughs> I didn't, you know, I sort of maybe knew it, but really the fear that motivated me on a daily basis was producing a dissertation that would pass muster for my advisors. You know, I knew I was going to have to sit there and defend myself in front of these people who I respected and who I was also terrified by, um, (laughs) I knew I was going to have to do that. And that was really the primary focus, you know? And um, I think shifting from that focus to a realization that, wait, I can address an audience much, much broader than those five people. um, Those five people who I really respect and am still terrified by (laughs) in the most productive way possible, I think. Um, And, I would like to do that. I would like to think about what does it mean to summon a public um, to your writing? What kind of public can you cultivate and how, how might I do that? So some of, the, you know, some of the changes were somewhat superficial. I put a lot of the, the theoretical work in footnotes. I put all my citations in footnotes. Um, I tried to change the language a little bit um, to make it, to make it accessible to a different kind of audience, I think. Not necessarily a broadly public one Um, because I'm still making some, I think, fairly arcane um, theoretical arguments that not a lot of people are going to be interested in. Um, But that was the primary shift, so going through and changing my languages, my language. Um, Substance-wise, I... There were a couple of things that didn't make the cut in the dissertation. I was fortunate enough to get a job offer um, without my dissertation completed. I had, I think, three of six proposed chapters at the time. (laughs) got a job offer, and um, I ended up writing five chapters. (laughs) Cranked it out. Happily, you know, thankfully passed my dissertation defense, got a Ph.D. And then um, with Ph.D. in hand, uh, went to University of California, San Diego. And in rewriting it, I wanted to incorporate some of those original thoughts that I hadn't been able to flesh out. So I added a chapter um, and I also went back. And I think my original dissertation chapters were something on the order of 20,000 words each. Just these unwieldy Detail laden, huge like the mammoth things. So a lot of the work was going back and taking those down to about eleven thousand. You know, and and in that, keeping an eye on what kind of audience am I speaking to, who might hear this, both in the United States, um, in in Japan, and beyond. Beyond those, so. Yeah, that's sort of my process. Yeah.
1: That's actually really interesting, um, given some of the kind of work that the book does as well. You talked about summoning a public,
0: right? mm-hmm. and
1: one of the chapters actually looks, and we'll get here um, in uh, a few or more than a few minutes, but one of the chapters actually takes on this idea of a public or multiple public, sort of inspired by the work of Michael Warner um, and others, and really, um, thinks about okay, what forms of attention um, do you need to cultivate in order to um, speak to and also create a public um, of a certain type? So it's it's interesting to hear reflections on that in the in terms of the process of creating the book um, because it's also very much a theme that I think emerges very beautifully from the book itself. Mm-hmm. So you've so let's get into it. Uh, let's get into the meat of the book. So you've already mentioned a little bit about um, the Baraku. Um, they are uh, they've this. There's a history of Barakumin um, that sort of roughly translated as you put it in the book means people of the neighborhood. Um, the what constitutes Baraku identity has really changed over time and is still changing. Um, but roughly, you talk about the the importance of the fact that they have historically been associated with. Stigmatized labor, like meat production, like leather production, and you call Baraku a kind of contagious category. Um, so we'll um, hopefully we'll talk about that as well. Now, um, the, this brings us into the introduction because, as you put it, the Baraku is uh, managed as a minority group in Japan, not through kind of techniques that we think about as associated with race and ethnicity, but with Types of labor and also with other kinds of techniques. Now, there's a kind of problem here. In in part, or one of the problems, one of the really interesting tensions is that not everyone who might be recognized as Baraku self-identifies or understands themselves as Baraku. There are a lot of different ways of being Baraku. And what the book does is it looks at. Um, so I'm just kind of contextualizing this for listeners, and then we'll dive in. The book looks at the labor. Okay, the labor involved in recognizing someone, including oneself, as Baraku, and focuses on the technologies of making difference, managing difference, marking difference through multiculturalism. Okay, so here's where I want to shut up and open up to you. Um, you talk, um, one of the really important contributions methodologically and conceptually that the book is making is by understanding multiculturalism in terms of labor. Mm-hmm. so could you start us off by speaking to that a little bit and opening that up um, when you talk about the labor of multiculturalism can you say a bit about what that means for you
0: yeah absolutely Because, so, yeah i think that's a conceptual nugget that really um drives the entire book and all the chapters so the the title of the book is working skin making leather making a multicultural japan and at first blush Japan might appear a strange place to talk about multiculturalism. You know, this is an island country famous for 200 years of national exclusion. Uh, it's followed, that was followed by, in the 20th and 21st centuries, really stringent immigration and citizenship laws. Um, Japanese nationals make up something like 98.5% of the population. To claim citizenship at birth, you must have at least one parent of Japanese citizenship, and it's not enough to be born on Japanese soil. So there's this really strong image of Japan as homogenous that's been entrenched within the Japanese national imaginary, if not the global imaginary, probably since shortly after Japan's defeat in World War II. Uh, Prior to that, however, Imperial Japan and several historians make this argument. I'm drawing on the work of like Oguma and other folks. Prior to that, Imperial Japan didn't really think of itself as a primarily homogenous nation-state. It was an imperial project centered in one ethnic group, but comprising increasing numbers of others in what it called its co-prosperity sphere. Or at least that That was the colonial aspiration. Uh, Several historians like Oguma Eiji um, have argued that this idea of Japan as homogenous emerged as a project only after the defeat of Imperial Japan. And that it took concerted effort in education and political campaigns and marketing strategies to have the citizens of that nation state understand themselves as ethnically similar if not uniform. So my argument, my book makes a similar argument about multiculturalism. So in Japan, so as odd as it might sound, you know, pitted against this entrenched idea that Japan is homogenous, multiculturalism has become a buzzword of sorts in millennial Japan. Really starting in the 1980s and reaching a peak in the past decade or so, uh, there have been multiple publications on Japan's minorities, you know, and it, there's also been an increasing call for domestic and anti-discrimination legislation and a political push among those on the left to have the United Nations hold Japan accountable for the proper recognition of its marginalized groups. So all of this, you know, all of those efforts takes a tremendous amount of labor to sustain. To sustain, um, There's this fight against the prevailing idea that Japan is not home to social diversity. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of labor to get the attention of a public and then get them rallied to fight on the behalf of marginalized people. And a tremendous amount of labor to provide evidence that minorities in Japan exist and that they face a host of social and economic disadvantages. And so against this huge beast of Japan is hom- homogenous, it takes a tremendous amount of labor to advance the idea, the understanding that Japan is actually multicultural on all sorts of fronts. Um, the question then is, who, what groups of people serve as evidence in that fight? Um, and the Burakumin are one the Buraku people are one such group. Uh, alongside them are the Okinawans, um, the indigenous Ainu, people of Korean descent whose ancestors were brought to Japan as forced labor, people of Chinese descent whose ancestors were brought to Japan as forced labor. So all of these groups have existed in Japan, but with this myth of homogenous Japan, sort of disappear from view. So a lot of a lot of the work. Um, in fighting against that is to take these different groups as evidence and present them um, in a serial form where they sort of stand as commensurate with each other uh, as evidence that Japan is actually home to social diversity. So the the book, this labor of multiculturalism really is looking at the argument that multiculturalism itself has a history. It is a form of governance, a form of management of social difference, uh, that has very particular contours, um, in the ways in which it does that and handles both minority groups and a majority group and that, that labor or that image of Japan as multicultural takes a tremendous amount of labor su- to sustain and also does a lot of work on those who come to serve as evidence. So the labor of multiculturalism is looking at that in the particular case of the buraku people who are themselves stigmatized because of the physical labor that they do. So then the book can look at this, this back and forth between the labor of NGOs um, and this factory labor of producing leather that has stigmatized buraku people.
1: Awesome. Thank you. And and, um, mentioning the importance of this labor actually, I think, takes us really nicely into the first part of the book. So the book is organized into three major sections. And each major section of the book advances and develops and sort of unpacks a particular argument. And these arguments build on each other as well. The first part of the book, Recognizing Buraku Difference, argues um, in your words that the labor required to produce convincing signs. And some of those signs are artifacts, some of them are arguments, they're types of people, they're kinds of moral judgment. This labor always has a reciprocal effect of transforming the people who are laboring, right? The peop- those who labor. Disciplined labor leaves marks, physical marks upon the body. Okay, so one of the really interesting things, one of the many really interesting things about um, the book is the kind of ethnographic fieldwork and ethnographic research that went into um, the work that you did here. So this ethnographic fieldwork included, as you describe it in the book, interviews, like years of different kinds of fieldwork, and it also included interning with an international NGO, the International Movement Against All Forms of Discrimination and Racism, and spending six months apprenticing at a small tannery in eastern Tokyo. So these last two examples of kinds of field work that I mentioned are really showcased in the first chapter of the book. This first chapter looks at the labor undertaken by NGO and leather tannery workers that's used to produce signs of being buraku. And it proceeds by considering um, your experience in both of these venues. So let's kind of get into this by maybe talking about that experience a little bit. Can you um, open up the importance of this NGO, this international movement against all forms of discrimination and racism, um, by talking a little bit about your experience there and perhaps the what you take to be the most important things to understand about that NGO and your experience there in order for us to understand the work that you're doing in the chapter.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, the, If this core argument about the labor of multiculturalism uh, relies on the juxtaposition of these two different forms of labor, the labor that stigmatizes people as buraku, and then the labor, the the NGO labor that goes into taking buraku people as evidence of multiculturalism, that first chapter was really, is really trying to look at that juxtaposition and how those two labors work together to characterize uh, multiculturalism in Japan. So I... As you said, I worked for about a year and a half. I interned with this organization called the International Movement Against All Forms of Discrimination and Racism uh, that is a an NGO, an anti-racist NGO, headquartered in Tokyo. Uh, it has a board of directors of people from really all over the world, uh, people in Sri Lanka, people in Mexico, uh, in as well as Japan. Um, And it has been around since 1986, when it was first founded by the Buraku Liberation League, which is the primary political organization for the Buraku people in Japan. And the Buraku Liberation League and its precursor, the Sui Heisha, which means the Levelers Association, have been around since about 1920, uh, 1921. There was a moment during World War II where they were pushed out of existence, um, as Japan did for all independent organizations, and then it came back and reformed itself as the Buraku Liberation League uh, after World War II. That organization has focused domestically on transforming the situation of Buraku people in Japan, and they slowly developed some international ties over the course of their work and realized that they had a lot to offer. Um, They had a lot to offer on an international um, scale, uh, stage, and also had potentially a lot to gain um, by interacting with other groups internationally. So in 1986, they founded this organization called the International Movement Against All Forms of Discrimination and Racism, and that organization has worked with other groups across the globe uh, many of which are similar to the Buraku people in that they are marginalized because of some sort of descent-based uh, and labor labor-related um, form of marginalization. So they work closely with the Dalit or the so-called untouchable or the so-called outcast of um, South Asia. They work with people in Yemen, people in Uganda, people really all over the world who make an argument that they too are facing some form of caste-based discrimination. And in addition to that, they also do solidarity work with other types of minority groups, um, other groups seen as minority that aren't just um, marginalized on the basis of some sort of descent and occupation category.
1: Great. And you describe working on their English website,
0: right? Yes. Um,
1: on the in the chapter and and talk about your experience there and, and describe um, the kind of labor environment as a sort of feminized labor in contrast to the kind of masculinized labor um, in your experience at the tannery. So can you um, maybe contrast your two kinds of experience working in these two very different kinds of sites? And for you, what's what are some of the most important things about that contrast or, or the lack of contrast um, for us to understand the arguments you're making here?
0: Yeah, um, I think one – one really, thing, one really important thing that occurred to me throughout was that both the factory labor and the NGO labor are material forms of labor. You know, we're, we're in a moment now where um, immaterial labor is contrasted with material labor. That's a frequent understanding of some of the shifts from Fortis to post-Fortis forms of labor. And... My research, I was really interested in what kind of material processes go into the performance of immaterial labor. So the, the chapter really centers on the actual physical processes, both of producing rawhide or producing leather from rawhide and in producing signs of the existence of the Buraku, Buraku people. One of the things that I, I was assigned while I was working with this organization was to design, help help work, not design, but help work on their English language website. And I worked alongside several other people, including a a designer and then the person who was being paid to do most of the work and had to work on their schedule. And I was interested in, you know, taking apart a kind of labor that I found to be uh, extremely familiar. You know, I spend the vast majority of of my time in front of a computer, reading books, taking notes on it, thinking about it, writing. Uh, And that was exactly the same kind of labor that I was being asked to do at the NGO, at the political organization. So I wanted to think critically about the kinds of material demands that were placed on me and then others in in that situation as we strove to create these uh, signs of the Buraku people. Um, so really I think that the, the take home one of the take home points for me in that chapter is this similarity, um thinking about labor as a set of demands, both in the factory setting, a, a setting we would recognize as Fordist you know, more Fordist form of labor, um industrial labor, and in this immaterial labor that, you know is you know very very similarly um, a, a set of physical demands. So yeah, I was interested in that.
1: Great. Right. And there's, um, for uh, listeners who haven't yet become readers, there are also some really wonderful descriptions in that chapter, and I'll just um, mention this without asking you to talk too much about it. Um, there are wonderful descriptions of the ways that this labor really physically marks and gets inscribed on bodies, and the physicality of the process of work at the tannery is very, I think, evocative and, and really, um, really fascinating. Now, if we looked in that chapter, or you looked in that chapter, at the production of signs of being buraku, there's also um, an element of this that you look at in Chapter 2, which which is importantly an issue of the non-production of signs of buraku identity. So Chapter 2 pays special attention to how stigma, as you put it, constrains and allows forms of life for people who spend much of their lives not being recognized as Buraku. So to kind of unpack a little bit of what's going on here, can you talk about the conditions under which someone might not know or might not self-identify as Buraku and how does this non-production of signs impact the Buraku movement?
0: Absolutely. Um, Yeah, so if that moment in the tannery north of Tokyo where I found out that that owner and the manager had gone to my hometown, if that's what like hooked me, Originally, um, one of the things that got me to stay, um, was the following. So after, after that interaction at the, that tannery, uh, the sociologist in Japan who I'd been working with was kind enough to invite me along to some interviews with, uh, older, relatively older Buraku people. And, you know, their sixties and their seventies who had been part of the Buraku liberation movement for, for a long, for decades, um, I went along. They, the sociologists, did most of the interviewing. I occasionally asked some questions, uh, but one pattern that emerged—this is again in my second year of graduate school in about 2003—one pattern that emerged that I found really striking was that a lot of people, despite the fact that they were deeply involved in the political movement did not tell their children that the family was considered buraku. And many of these people themselves, particularly the ones in their 40s and 50s, a little younger, um, did not themselves know that they could be considered buraku until some moment, maybe in their later ten- teens, early 20s, uh, where they experienced discrimination and then had to rethink of who they were. Uh, so there are generations of people who are being raised um, by parents who are really optimistic that their children will not have to face the kind of discrimination that they have to face. Uh, So their parents don't tell their kids that the family could be considered buraku. And the kids in a raised thinking themselves alike, similar to all of their other classmates, not marked as different at all, um, but are sometimes the subjects of harassment in school and bullying because the parents of the Their classmates frequently tell the kids, "Oh, that kid is from such and such family. Don't hang out with them." Or they will do this thing where they they hold up four fingers um, and point to a person with those four fingers, and that that sort of uh, identifies someone as more closely related to animals, closer to animals. You know, like in the you know production meat and leather, closer closely related to animals than to humans. Mm -hmm. So there are all of these kids who are raised. Being harassed um, and made fun of in schools, but not having any idea that that harassment was systematic. That they themselves were related to a group of people across the archipelago that had a hundred centuries long history. So, I looking at that, um, it felt so different from my own narrative of myself as gay, where you know I know that I am gay, and then I can come out to people. Um, as I choose to some degree, you know, like there's this narrative of like I'm in the closet, and then I like open the closet door and I show, you know, I come out for some people, perhaps on radio, um, and then I can step back in, kind of thing. These this group of people um was so different, you know, like they themselves did not know themselves as Buraku, and yet everyone around them could know them as Buraku, and I found. I was really curious then about like how that social stigma is being reproduced, and what what were the contours of it, um, since you know the reproduction of it was happening at a distance from the person in question.
1: That's right, and this, the chapter um, I think also really nicely again for listeners who um, are interested in this concept of buraku? it situates this within a kind of history of buraku identity as well. And so listeners who are particularly interested in that kind of emergence of different forms of identity over time will find a lot of interest in that chapter. Mm -hmm. Now, you just mentioned the issue of choice, right? So Mm -hmm. chapter two, the end of chapter two in particular, raises an issue that then will become of central importance in the second part of the book. And this is the issue of Buraku identity as a kind of choice. So the second part of the book, um, choice and obligation in contemporary Buraku politics, looks at um, or argues, and and I'll use your words here because they're much more elegant than my paraphrase (laughs) will ever be. Um, This book argues, and this is again using your words, that multicultural recognition is a particular liberal mode of governing social difference, and that this centers on a staged tension between freedom and obligation. And so this tension between freedom and obligation really um, is is one of the motivating forces um, animating the two chapters in this part of the book. The third chapter, um, which is the first chapter in part two, um, looks closely at how ties, different kinds of ties, kinship, occupation, residence, help determine who's known as buraku, and who know themselves as Buraku. These ties have changed over time and they form a different kind of way of producing identity and producing stigma specifically that, um, then what we typically think of as racial um, racialized stigma. Now you use two examples, two case studies in this chapter, both of which are super fascinating. Um, one of them is a private detective in- industry that identifies Buraku people for paying clients, which is just, you know, private detective industry, like, you had me at private detective industry. Okay, like that that's it. I mean like game over by the book, you know. Um but also <laughs> another really fascinating part of this chapter though is is looking at the environmental critique of Buraku Industries. Um, Mm. You know, you talk about smell as a kind of stigma. You talk about the sort of um, the the sludge of the tannery um, that you uh, or that's in the area that you worked in. So can you talk maybe a little bit about this? What um, what's most important for us to understand about the force that this environmental critique brings to bear in this part of the book?
0: Absolutely, and if I get too carried away on this, Carlo, there's so much to say. Feel free to interrupt me. me. So <laughs> um, another another thing I noticed, you know, is like several some of these Buraku families, even though they were activists, would not raise their children knowing that they were Buraku. Uh, alongside that, I, w- I saw Japanese people from you know non from outside of Tokyo moving to Tokyo and looking for a relatively cheap place to rent. They would find one and then unbeknownst to them, move into a neighborhood that was historically Buraku. Uh, And Buraku, like you said before, means essentially neighborhood. It's a euphemism for people from that kind of neighborhood. And people who have absolutely no connection to Japan's um, so-called outcasts, Japan had a caste system up until 1868, it was formally abolished in 1871, um, but still sort of continues informally, and the Uraku stigma is the inheritor of that outcast stigma, but the boundaries are so much fuzzier. Um, so that, you know, two people, a couple could move to Tokyo looking just for a cheap place to rent. They themselves are not um, descendants of the outcast from the, the, the Tokugawa period, nor have they or anyone in their family ever had anything to do with any sort of meat processing or leather processing or any other stigmatized industry, and yet because they move into this neighborhood, they can be seen by other people as burakus. Um, so, I mean, that was fascinating to me—the like the promiscuity of this category of person. It's super contagious along these lines of occupation if you work in one of these stigmatized industries. Along the lines of kinship if you're related to uh, by blood or by marriage uh, someone who has worked in these industries or um, by um, descent from you know from someone who did this or the, the third vector of contagion as I call it is um, spatial so moving into one of these neighborhoods and they all rely on certain technologies of tracking people. So to know to know that someone lives in a stigmatized neighborhood, you have to know that neighborhood is stigma You have to know that it's a neighborhood at all, that it has like discrete boundaries. And you have to know um, that it is and historically has been stigmatized. Uh, and the ways that that's been tracked by the government, by political organizations, by individuals, has shifted a lot over the past 10 years. Or I'm sorry, over the past 60 years. And those technologies of tracking people have resulted in all sorts of blurriness. Yes. And um, yeah, one of the one of the ways that people who are concerned about Buraku stigma entering into their families has managed this is by hiring protective private detective agents. Uh, private detectives. So they will, you know, if if their child uh, starts dating someone, and this is usually people who have access to wealth, because private detectives are expensive. Um, if their child starts dating someone, and gets serious, it looks like that person is going to move into or going to get married and join the family, that the family, the parents or the grandparents, will hire a private detective to research that person's background. And that might be a person who has never known themselves to be buraku, to be different, to be marked as different. But if the Private detective goes to where that person's grandparents grew up and asks neighbors, What kind of neighborhood is this? and then hears from someone on the street that, Yes, this is considered a, a buraku neighborhood or it's a bad neighborhood. Um, then that can translate into the private detectives coming back and saying that person is buraku, and then the parents might make a decision to forbid the marriage. And suddenly that person at age twenty one or whatever, who their entire lives has not known themselves as Buraku is suddenly said told, You cannot marry into this family. You are Buraku. You've never thought of yourself as such, but you are that. Um, so suddenly, you know, like maybe this person's learned about learned about Buraku in junior high or high school, maybe not. But suddenly, like all of that history that they learned about about other people is supposed to be relevant to them. Um, so I was really interested in how I mean, the, to go back to your question about freedom and obligation um, I was really interested in how a political movement want, tr- creates a constituency right, that may not even know itself to be Buraku um, How do you create a constituency, you know, ignorant of that fact, that m- is interested in being mobilized? And so on the one hand they want people to choose to embrace Buraku identity, but on the first hand they sort of have to give them that Buraku identity in the first place. So they're creating the grounds on which that agency might happen. So there's a, a tension in the political movement between wanting these, these self-determined subjects, these liberal subjects um, to choose Buraku identity, but then on the you know on the flip hand, creating them as Buraku identified, having them understand themselves as that. So that was really the motivating tension. And I can talk more about the environmental critique too, um, if you'd like.
1: Well maybe let's um let's just kind of mark the environmental critique for now. Maybe we'll come back to it if we have time, but we need to get to the sleeping people. Okay. Right. So, okay. so I'll just mention um, for for <laughs> listeners who are particularly interested in the kinds of environmental critiques that are brought to bear on these issues, um, check out chapter three, not just because of the private detectives, right? But there are also (laughs) private detectives. um, But there's a lot of attention toward this as a kind of environmental issue. And then we could talk about that for another hour. Easy, right? (laughs) But we got to get to the sleepers.
0: Yeah, we. (laughs) So
1: one of the ways um, of creating this kind of political constituency that you talked about is by defining or sort of creating ways of paying attention, right? Mm -hmm. So creating um, notions of what it means to be attentive in a clearly defined manner and thus what it means to be a particular kind of public. And so this kind of links back to some of the early parts of our conversation today when we were talking about publics and um, the relationship between publics and attention um, or very early on in our conversation. So in this chapter, you bring us into two kinds of buddhaku political strategies um, that are actually, they're quite different, but are related. One of the kind of tactics um, that you look at for, as you put it, making and remaking these abstract ideals of multiculturalism and human rights as they relate to Boraku identity are these things called denunciation sessions. Okay? These are sessions of public shaming of people who discriminate against Boraku people. At the same time, you also take us into this other um, kind of arena, and this is where the sleepers are, and these are human <laughs> a human rights seminar, right? So a public forum for discussing the importance of human rights and respect for minorities. Um, so I'm just going to open this app and leave it to you what's going on with the sleeping people at the seminar that you went to and what's important about that for understanding the argument that you're making in this part of the book.
0: Absolutely. Um, yeah, so I went to, as you know, part of my job as an intern for this NGO, I would go to and help set up a lot of seminars, uh, that they would conduct on various human rights issues or changes in the UN, um, Human rights structure or, you know, education for college students or education for people in businesses. And I, (laughs) from the get go, and then frequently for the next year and a half, noticed that a lot of the people in attendance, so there were 200 people in attendance of a particular event would be asleep. (laughs) would sleep during these things. I mean, none of, we're we're all sort of familiar with this, you know, like we work busy, we work, you know, long hour jobs and we're tired and we all go to meetings where people doze. I mean, in graduate school, sometimes like during seminars, we'd have outside speakers and like some of our our advisors like (laughs) snooze at the table. We've all seen this, right? Or have done it ourselves. But I was just amazed at the persistence, <laughs> persistent presence of these these sleepers um, and what kind of challenge they were to the political movement. you were oh, saying, I, I'm
1: going to go against uh, uh, my rules and, and interrupt for a minute because at uh, one point in the chapter, you mentioned looking around at this two hour public forum, right? And counting 154 uh,
0: <laughs> sleeping
1: people. I just needed to mention that number, hundred and fifty four. Okay, now go on. Sorry.
0: Uh, that I mean that was only when I was awake to count You know, <laughs> I had some it could have been one fifty five. Um, I was yeah, I was tired too. Taken out. Um <laughs> Yes, yeah, so I was really curious, of like, all right, if the, this political movement is trying to rally a group of people to fight against discrimination and they get people to show up, there are, you know, butts and seats. <laughs> and that costs each one of those costs like 20 to 30 U.S. dollars, um, which is generating revenue. You know, so there is a public there is a form of attention there that comes in mere presence um, But there's a slippage between having those people show up, having the money come into your coffers and creating someone who is authentically really interested in transforming the situation of the buraku in Japan and transforming Japan in general. So it is it handles social difference in a different way. And I was really interested in those two different forms of attention, the paying the money, the showing up and the the snoozing, you know, like this lack of volitional engagement Um I was really interested in that tension and its history in the political movement, particularly because, you know, I'd done a lot of reading on publics and Michael Warner makes this this argument. You know, there's actually a a moment in um, one of his essays on publics where he says, you know, you can imagine someone going to the ballet, paying to go to the ballet and then sleeping through it. And that person still is part of the public. And I you know I sort of wanted to unpack that and pull that apart because for the political movement itself, at some moments it's enough that people actually show up because it funds their, it funds their efforts, it funds the next meeting. but um, on the flip side sometimes it's really problematic that those people, all one hundred and fifty four of them are sleeping are snoozing and I was really interested in how What counts as attention is a social and historical problem. Like at different moments, different things count as being attentive. Publics themselves are thought of not as this freestanding like thing that exists out there, but are pulled into different regimes of assessment um, and are constituted through different regimes of assessment. And that's sort of what the, the chapter was trying to pull apart
1: Thank you so much. And we could, again, we could talk about like a million other things about that chapter. Um, but what I want to do is bring us to part three of the book um, to make sure that we have time to talk about this as well. So part three of the book looks at international standards and the pos- possibilities of solidarity. And this is what the part three of the book is called. This part of the book argues, and again, I'm going to use your terms because they are much more elegant than mine, that gl- globalization can be understood through embodied practices that allow for two things, movement and commensuration across different arenas of action. And this idea of movement um, is particularly striking to me. You talk about a uh, kind of politics of movement and at one point in Chapter 5, embed what's happening here within a larger framework, a uh, discourse, historiography, um, sort of conceptual frame of studies of movement and circulation and exchange. And I think that's become so dominant in so much of humanistic and social sciences discourse that a real a, a, a sort of focus attention to um, movement and circulation and a kind of critical attention to that is one of the many, many really important contributions that this part of the book makes. So it does this. So there's there's two chapters um, in this part of the book, and we'll kind of look at them in turn, um, but uh, not as in as much detail um, as we probably, you know, that ideally we could, but let's start. (laughs) So so, Chapter 5 looks at the recently established UN-United Nations category – discrimination based on work and dissent. And you talk in this chapter of the book about the kind of labor and you ask, you know, what kind of labor is necessary to create a legal standard of discrimination that works across populations. And so this is the um, that movement and commensuration um, coming into play here. Now, these standards have come to support a Baraku politics of international solidarity. So can you talk about this a little bit? What in particular is important about this international um, aspect of this notion of Baraku solidarity and, uh, you know, Baraku politics in this context?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, strategically for the political movement, there there was this push, one, to, you know, to, to share... Um, their understandings and their practices and their experiences with a greater international um, realm. So in 1986, they started this uh, organization, the International Movement Against All Forms of Discrimination and Racism, uh, to open themselves up to partnerships with people outside of the country. And then also with that, um, hopefully gain support of people outside of the country so that they might pressure on the Japanese government to enact anti-discrimination legislation or a variety of, a variety of other things. Um, in Japanese, that kind of external pressure is referred to as gaiatsu, um, which just means external pressure, uh, and is a, a frequently mentioned tactic. Um, and I was really interested in, okay, in this push to garner allies from all over the world, how do we understand ourselves? How do I understand myself? How does this group understand itself as similar to other people? How do we understand ourselves as, you know, of a kind together? So we might be doing, working on a similar sort of thing together. And, you know, at the moment that you do that, you're sort of, Assuming a background of differences, but then asserting this sim- this bridge of similarity across it. Um, and in order to do that, in order to recognize two things as similar, um, it requires a standard. Um, so what what sort of authority backs that standard? What sort of labor goes into producing and reproducing, maintaining that standard and that authority? Um were the questions that were driving me here because I saw, you know, since, since the early two thousands, there was this attempt uh, to create this UN level uh, standard, you know, um, a type of discrimination called discrimination based on work and descent and get UN special rapporteurs who worked specifically on this to investigate how this form of discrimination based on working descent might be functioning in all sorts of different places all over the globe, Um, in Yemen, in Uganda, in Japan, in potentially even Korea, in India, in Nepal, and so on. Um, But in order to do that, they had to create some sort of like set of standards by which they would judge people sufficiently similar to be grouped together. And it was a—it's a tough process. It's an ongoing process, and there have been failures, um, and there have been successes along the way, because that—you know—that judging of things as similar then allows for movement to happen, um, or requires certain forms of movement to happen. So that's really the—the the crux of that chapter.
1: Great, and and um, for readers and listeners who are particularly again interested in the kind of. Um, equivalence as a process, right? The making equivalent as something that happens through and as part of circulation. There's a, there's some really wonderful um, kind of conceptual and methodological reflections in Chapter 5 on that as well. So I just want to draw a listener's attention to that. Now this brings us to Chapter 6. Um, chapter 6 is uh, a, an amazing chapter, okay, a really amazing chapter. This looks at groups that don't have the kinds of resources um, that are linked up with the UN, but that still are working to create other kinds of possibilities um, to generate and sort of sustain um, identity through international solitaire- solidarity. So the chapter follows Tokyo Sanitation and Tannery Workers on a Study Tour to Tamil Nadu. And it looks at the relationship between Buraku and Dalit, grassroots solidarity. And you mentioned, I think, at the very beginning of our conversation, um, this link between Buraku and Dalit um, as part of the story. Now, what I want to do here is just open this up to you, for you. um, I mean, there's so much going on in this chapter What for you are the most important um, things happening in this chapter? And for you, um, what's most important for us to understand in order to understand the arguments that you're making in this part of the chapter or in this part of the book?
0: I think the most important thing there for me is how alive, um, how much of a living thing this thing called solidarity is, how much work it is it requires to reproduce um on a daily basis how much questioning of what two groups are maybe doing together and what are their different roles in that process um is really required of a solidarity movement so i you know i had this really great i was fortunate enough to have this really wonderful opportunity to go with this group of sanitation workers from tokyo who i had been teaching english to in preparation for this trip um to uh chennai to the the southern bit of india um, on a sa- on a study tour. And this is something they've conducted, I think, now eight times on an annual basis and maybe didn't go one year in there. But they've been going on a regular basis with this feeling of, there's something really similar between the situation of the sanitation workers and the Buraku people in Japan and the situation of the Dalit uh, in India. Let's figure out what that similarity is and what we might be able to do together if we see ourselves as similar in this. So against this backdrop of chapter five's discussion of a UN level creation of a standard, this is much more like, well, how does this impact grassroots movements? Uh, and what sort of opportunities does it open up? What sort of difficulties come along the way? Um, and how, what do we do with this? Um, so the Chapter 6 follows that set of questions that look at not just these are two groups and we are similar and we are going to work together, but we are two groups who are connected by maybe a larger process that values and devalues forms of life in a systematic way across different nation-states. We are not totally the same in this, but we can work together to understand this larger process that goes across nation-states um, and then work to transform it. Uh, so the chapter is really trying to follow follow their, their motions and you know, be inspired by the understandings they have in this process.
1: So there are, um, we won't talk about, or I won't ask you about details, but there's some really moving stories in this chapter um, that I'll just direct listeners to. There's also um, one of the stories that comes out of this is your story of helping your students create what you call my story. Right. Mm -hmm. So for each one of them that uh, so that they could kind of learn to or become comfortable enough in English to present themselves and to communicate something about themselves under this rubric of my story when they were working with their Dalit contemporaries. And you mentioned um, at the end of this chapter that. After all that work, <laughs> none of them actually did, right? None of them actually yeah. shared. Um, so do you want to talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. I mean, that's kind of a striking part of the story.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, they, this is a group of people who had already once gone to uh, Tamil Nadu and were really had sort of more in the fact that they weren't able to communicate directly with people they met there. So the second time around, they looked around for someone who was familiar with Buraku issues and also a native speaker of English who could teach them teach them some English. And they found me. I'd been working with this other with the international movement of against all forms of discrimination, racism. Um, and they'd heard about me. We had lunch a couple times, and they asked if I'd be willing to teach them English. And I said, sure. And on our first first day, we sat down and I asked them what their priorities were, what their goals were. And one of them was to be able to communicate their situations of coming to understand themselves as Buraku, um, what sorts of activist work they have engaged in, um, what their lives have been like, like to develop a short story in English where they could then communicate that to um People in Tamil Nadu. So that's what we did. We practiced it, we scripted it, practiced it over and over and over. And part of me, you know, felt really bad doing it. I mean, this is what they asked me to do, but one person in particular, um, one of the days that we were practicing these stories, stood up and said her story. And as she did, started to cry um, with the realization that she had never really had the opportunity to share this story. with anyone before <laughs> like is she in this class in like scripting this English language um thing that she'd wanted to say to people in India, you know, that she thought was really important to say to people in India, was for the first time creating an opportunity for herself to say this at all. Um, and she found it extremely moving. I felt sort of bad because I was the teacher and re- had required that everyone say these out loud. Um, and she reassured me that, no, this is something she wanted to do. She wanted to be able to communicate her situation um, to people that she met. In Tamil Nadu. Um, so lots of work went into it. And then we got there and no one really used their my story. I mean, there were moments where people were chit back and forth, but the scripts that we had practiced, no one really used it. And we came back to Japan and they lamented that. And it was partially due to the fact that most of the people that we were dealing with um, in India did not speak English. <laughs> like, they spoke Tamil. You know, like most people did not have education in English and did not have sufficient command of English to be able to understand it, even if the people from Japan had said it. Um, and there was also sort of a realization that we don't need necessarily to communicate this in words. We can work together and alongside each other um, and not have a shared verbal spoken language and yet still have a shared like practice together. I don't think they employed um, an English teacher for the next year, <laughs> which maybe was just testament to like me being a really bad teacher. I don't know, <laughs> or maybe more testament to the fact that you know they saw themselves engaged in this project together, independent of what language they spoke. Yeah.
1: And and actually, one of the um, really uh, or a couple of really interesting points that come out of this chapter that I'll just mention to kind of mark this um, for listeners, even if we don't have time to talk about it in detail. Um, as you mentioned, this sort of, uh, you know, beyond language. I'm just, you know, taking um, off from what you just said. You mentioned the importance of pain and woundedness mm-hmm. in right, building um, solidarity, and you also talk about um, solidarity as a process of cultivating sympathy, right? A sort of way of feeling with. Rather mm-hmm. than feeling for, um, that we don't actually need to do that, right, through verbal language. That this sort of process and performance and act of feeling with and um, this sort of uh, linking that pain and woundedness um, create are, you know, transcendent of language in ways.
0: Yeah, and, and that there are two ways to understand that pain. You know, I mean, these aren't. One realization that I had in working with this group where I thought like, okay, there's one group that's marginalized in India, one group that's marginalized in Japan, they get together and share stories of their oppression and of their pain. Like what I saw in practice was actually an understanding that these aren't two divergent groups who are just sharing intimate experiences of pain. These are two groups who already see themselves as connected to each other in this larger process that has these effects um, in multiple places, so it's not simply that oh you're way over there we're disconnected and I feel sorry for you or I even feel with you I'm going to learn to feel with you, but uh, you and I are already connected we're already part of a larger process that affects us in really similar ways.
1: Right. So Joe, there are um, we've I've already taken up a lot of your time so I, I don't want to ask you to talk. Um, too much more, but I'll just sort of mention um, for listeners there, in addition to the really wonderful chapters that we've talked about, there are also um, a conclusion and an epilogue. And in the conclusion, there's, you talk about a change in the kind of what you call the suitability of buraku issues to represent Japan internationally. So the conclusion sort of looks at, okay, in a larger uh, scope of understanding Japan um, in general, you know, in international terms, um, to what extent has buraku have buraku issues in the past been proper or considered by various organizations and funding agencies, etc., proper ways of engaging that issue, and to what extent have, has that changed over time? Um, so you look at those transformations. You look at patterns in the demands made by multi- multiculturalism in that chapter, and then in an epilogue, there's just a really beautiful um, a few pages that takes us back to Texas. Right? If we moved from the beginning, the beginning of the book from Lubbock, Texas, to Japan, we go back to Lubbock um, in the epilogue, um, and it's a you know just a really I think moving end to the story so joe um we've talked about a lot of the uh, book um there's a lot of wonderful stuff though of course that we didn't have a chance to talk about it's ex- an exceptionally evocative and thoughtful study is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners
0: i i don't think so mm-hmm yeah, I think, that, I think that's good. I hope that it gives a pretty good introduction to people of what the book is about um, and some of the themes that are working through it.
1: Great. And there's much, much more in the book. Um, so I think there's a lot more detail and a lot more elaboration of all the things that we've talked about and much more. So now that the book is out, and congratulations, I think it's probably, I hope it's obvious that I loved the book and I think it's an amazing book. What, what's next for you? What are you currently that's, inspired by?
0: It's so exciting. I mean, talking about that transformation from dissertation to book, it's this first book, you know, is 14 years in the making. And it had to do so much work, you know, like it had to give me a dissertation, a job, tenure, all, you know, fingers crossed on that one. But (laughs) It's amazing now to sit and formulate a book. From the get-go, knowing that it is going to be a book and knowing having a really different relationship with it. So what I'm thinking about right now, I actually have like four or five things I'm toying with. But the one that I've actually been pursuing and the past couple of years and have gotten funding for um, looks at this group of relatively young people in their 30s and 40s in Japan who are fed up with the post-fordist kind of labor, of flexible labor. You know, they don't think that it is giving them a sustainable form of life. It is not giving them a sustainable set of relationships with each other, with the earth, um, and they, um, particularly after the Fukushima triple disasters in japan have said okay this is this way of life is not sustainable let's do something different um you know i teach these classes on on labor and the shift from Fortis to post Fortis labor um and a lot of them end really really unoptimistically <laughs> you know like it's just it seems like labor is precarious we're in terrible situations you know nuclear right. like, it's it's really pessimistic so My next project, um, I'm really interested in this group of people who are leaving urban sites in Japan and going to places of industrial collapse and engaging in these projects that they talk about in terms of reclaiming life. Um, So they're going to these places of industrial collapse and creating farms and creating a new form of labor um, that isn't totally reliant on some sort of nostalgic farming past, but is really future-oriented and about the production of hope. So I'm I'm excited about these projects of reclaiming life And that's what the next project is about.
1: Awesome. That sounds fantastic. So best of luck with that. Um, Let me know when that's done and we'll talk about that as well. (laughs) Um, And thank you so much, Joe. It's really been a pleasure um, and really best of luck with your new project. And thank you for this one.
0: Carla, thank you so much. This has really, really been fun. I appreciate it.
1: You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next time.